Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Our guest today is Barry Goldstein, an internationally recognized domestic violence author, speaker, and advocate. He has worked in the DV movement since 1983 and served as an instructor in a New York model batterer program since 1999. He is co-editor of two volumes of Domestic Violence, Abuse, and Child Custody with Dr. Mo Therese Hanna, as well as Representing the Domestic Violence Survivor, co-authored with Elizabeth Liu. Barry is here with us today to speak about gender bias in the courts, as well as his role as research director for the Stop Abuse Campaign and the Safe Child Act, which is a comprehensive legislative solution to the child custody crisis. Thank you and welcome, Barry. Good to be here. So let's get started. You have had decades of experience working in the court systems specifically to bring awareness around the struggles that protective parents have had. Can you first define for us what is a protective parent? Usually there are two parents. One is the one who's abusive and the other is the one that's trying to protect her child. And overwhelmingly, it's a situation where the mother is the protective parent, although that is not always the case. And you came to this experience from your access to research on gender bias. Is that correct? Uh, Yes, I've written some of the leading books about domestic violence in custody, and gender bias is an important part of that. Okay, can you talk to us about the research in gender bias and what it says? Yes, about 40 states have had court-sponsored gender bias committees, and they have all found widespread bias against women litigants. And generally speaking, the types of bias are that women are held to a higher standard of proof, they are given less credibility, and they are blamed for the actions of their abuser. And how has this gender bias typically played out in the decisions that have been made? They very much favor abusive fathers. So I understand that you have access now to current scientific research about how these practices are incompatible with current family court practices. Can you talk about ACEs, for example? Well, ACEs is really going to change the custody courts if they would just start integrating it. So let's first, what is ACEs? Okay, ACEs, A-C-E stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. It is research from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it's really medical research. Uh Uh-huh. And what does it say? It fundamentally says that um, exposure to domestic violence, child abuse, and other traumas is far more harmful than previously understood. And most of the harm is not from the physical injuries, which court professionals typically focus on, but rather it's living with the fear, which leads to stress, which leads to a lifetime of health and social problems. And just just to be clear, 
ACEs has not really been incorporated into the decision-making practice and process of the judges and the and the people who are making decisions about the children. Well, Is that correct? Well, it's interesting. The National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges for the past few years has been training their members. The problem is that that's a small minority of the judges that handle custody cases, so that in individual courts, most of them have not yet integrated the ACE research. I see. And what about you shared recently uh, at a conference that I attended some other areas of scientific research that I'd like to ask you about. So you mentioned Daniel Saunders. Um, can you tell us about who he is and what his research says? Well, Dr. Saunders is a sociologist, a professor at the University of Michigan, and he was commissioned by the U.S. Justice Department to look at the training and knowledge regarding domestic violence of evaluators, judges, and lawyers, and really found that most of these professionals do not have the specific knowledge they need, which is why so often the courts disbelieve true reports of abuse. I see. And what about the BALA study? What does that say? The BALA study basically has two major findings. The first is that in contested custody cases, mothers make deliberate false reports less than 2% of the time, but fathers are 16 times more likely to make deliberate false reports than mothers. And this is really important because the myth that mothers frequently make false reports is a big reason the courts tend to disbelieve mothers' reports of abuse, and that results in children being harmed. So you're saying that 98% of the time when there's an accusation of abuse by the mother, it is actually true? Almost. Okay. Um, You know, if it's domestic violence, that's probably true. If it's something like child sexual abuse, where the mother is not a direct witness, it's possible that she has information from her child, but since she didn't witness it, the child might be acting out for other reasons. But the point is it's not a deliberate false report. Okay, I see. And what about the Bartlow study in child murders? Tell us about that. Okay, the first thing is in the last 10 years, more than 600 children involved in contested custody have been murdered, mostly by abusive fathers. And in many cases, the courts have given access to the children that led to their murders. Dr. Bartlow was a professor in California, and she interviewed some of the best judges in the country in the communities where these tragedies occurred. And she asked the judges, what reforms have they adopted in response to the child murder? And the answer was none, because they all assumed that the tragedy in their community was an exception. So is that one of the reasons that we keep seeing in the news these, I guess, does the murder-suicides fall under those cases that we see in the news repeatedly? And then there's always some level of, quote-unquote, conflict or custody that was 
referenced in those articles when we read about them. That's a big part of it. But also remember that the same mistakes that lead to child murders more often result in children being abused and having a lifetime of problems, even if they're not immediately murdered. Ah, I see. And I understand there's also a more recent study, the Meyer study. Can you summarize what what the significance of that study is? Right. We had a lot of research that indicated that the courts are not using best practices to recognize and respond to domestic violence. So the Meyer study looked at when you have cases where the mother is raising concerns about domestic violence or child abuse and the father counters with the alienation tactic, how often do fathers win? And what they found out is that it's about 70% of the time in abuse cases, and since only 2% are deliberately false, that means that in a large majority of abuse cases, the courts are getting it wrong and placing children in jeopardy. What do you mean when when you're referring to the word alienation, when the fathers, you said the fathers are accusing alienation. What does that mean? Well, many years ago, a psychiatrist by the name of Richard Gardner concocted a theory called parental alienation syndrome. It's not based on any research, just his personal views. And his personal views included many public statements to the effect that sex between adults and children can be acceptable. And the thing is, Judges who uh, who allowed this kind of misinformation to come in were not aware of the basis for this theory. And even today, this theory continues to have tremendous influence and helps abusive fathers win control. I see. So the aggregate of all of this research that you've just described really sets the stage for redefining the narrative that the courts are used to and are using to make decisions. Is that correct? Yes. uh, In my presentation today, I talked about how we had reached a tipping point that the research is now so clear that there is no justification in using the practices that the courts adopted in the 1970s. And we now know it results in the courts getting a large majority of the cases wrong. And given the ACE research, the consequences to children is catastrophic. And and by that, the consequences, you you were referring to the ACEs, so potentially the negative health outcomes that they may be at risk, higher risk to experience as adults. Is that right? Well, specifically, children will live shorter lives. We're taking many years or decades off of children's lives, and they are going to be suffering cancer and heart disease and suicide and mental illness and all sorts of horrible things. They're going to have problems with relationships. They're going to deal with crime and substance abuse. All sorts of bad things happen when children are exposed to ACEs. And the custody case is the last chance often to save children from these consequences. I see. And how has the media typically, if they're covering these cases, how have they been crafting these narratives? Well, it's interesting. For decades, the media really failed children. 
this problem has gone on for at least since the 70s. In the last few years, the media has been starting to expose the scandal. And I think the media has been more willing to do that because the research now is so overwhelming. Can you give some examples where we're seeing small changes in the way they're covering these cases and what they are? Yes. The Boston Globe did a wonderful story about a sexual abuse case in which the professionals failed to use important research like Saunders and wound up sending a little girl to live with a rapist. The Washington Post did some wonderful stories about a child murder that easily could have been prevented if they had used best practices. And then they exposed a a reunification scam where court professionals were making a fortune trying to reunite children with dangerous abusers. And the the first example that you gave, that was the Boston Globe. Yes. Um, what happened to the child that was sent to live with her rapist? She was with him for a couple of years. Finally, they figured out that that was a terrible tragedy, and eventually the child returned to the mother. The question is whether the damage can be overcome. Okay, so it's too early to tell because... Yes. Okay. And so I understand that you have been in the process of taking this research and presenting it to various judicial organizations to make some changes in the practices and policies that they have. Is that right? Yes. We put together a lot of the fairly new research with some of the media investigations because we think we passed the tipping point where we can no longer pretend that the present practices work for children. And I was very pleased that both judicial organizations that we approached uh, responded in a very positive way. The National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges put together a team of their experts and are working with me and my colleagues from the Stop Abuse Campaign. And we want to change the way judges are trained And we also want to change practices that have been used to put children in jeopardy. So is there a timeline for the strategy or is that still in the process of being constructed? It's still in the process. I think the, the issue is there are some judges who have gotten the good training and are doing better, but it hasn't gotten through to most courts. And it's really frustrating. The the ACE study came out in 1998. The Saunders study came out in 2012. And still most courts haven't integrated this important research that's needed to protect children. So how long do you think this process will be before you you can put together a plan? And how how much opportunity is there for the public to weigh in on it and be a part of that process? Well, in terms of the public, what we need and what the solution is, is the Safe Child Act. If the public were to ask their representatives to pass the Safe Child Act, as soon as that passes, we're going to start protecting our children. Can you tell us what the Safe Child Act is? Yes, it's a comprehensive plan based on current research, and it would require courts to make the health and safety of children the first priority It would require the courts to integrate current research, use a more multidisciplinary approach, 
That would include experts in domestic violence and child sexual abuse. It would require an early hearing limited to the issues of abuse so that cases that now take many years can be resolved in a couple of hours. It would require including domestic violence advocates in training judges and as expert witnesses and, you know, basically integrating this research. Is the Safe Child Act a national act or is that a state-by-state act? It has to be passed state-by-state. So far, three states have introduced it. It hasn't been passed yet. And are you actively working to advocate for the rest of the states one by one to learn about it, understand it, and then adopt? adopt Yes. The Stop Abuse Campaign has a campaign action team And we have supporters in just about every state. And most of the states have a group of supporters that are working in their state to create the the, uh, Safe Child Act in their state. And for the three states, can you name which states they are? Yes, it was Hawaii was the first state, followed by Pennsylvania and then Utah. Okay, and what was your experience, what was the experience like of the advocates on the ground to actually get the elected officials to listen and be successful? Well, I mean, we still have to get it passed, Uh but what was interesting is I think we're changing the discussion which needed to be changed because when we go to a legislator and we say what we want is to make the health and safety of children the first priority, and how can you argue with that? And the most common response is that they thought that was already the law. And so that's a good way to get started to convince legislators that we need to pass this law. But it seems like the other components that you mentioned require a lot of coordination and a lot of resources, you know, in particular financial resources and funding to be able to train domestic violence advocates to be part of the process in these cases, to take them away from the work that they're doing day to day right now, or to maybe hire more people. It's a a lot of, you know, the training around coordination. Has that been an impediment to to getting support? Well, actually, within the Safe Child Act, the the part that I told you about an early hearing, Mm -hmm. that's going to save far more judicial time and money. Because if you can resolve cases in two hours instead of, you know, two years, that's going to save an enormous amount of money. But keep in mind, in the United States, we spend over a trillion dollars every year to allow men to abuse women. If we use more effective practices so that the worst abusers cannot continue to use the family courts to regain control over their victims, we're going to save a lot of that money. Can you break down what that trillion dollars is comprised of? Yes. Most of it is in health care costs. Remember we said that in the ACE study, the living with the fear and the stress causes a lifetime of health issues. So the United States spends $750 billion a year on health costs related to domestic violence. Then you spend over $200 billion dollars on criminal costs related to domestic violence. And then another big consideration is that women and children exposed to domestic violence and child abuse don't reach their economic potential. 
and it undermines our whole economy. So actually, the cost is much higher because if you calculate the opportunity cost to both the survivor and her children of reaching their economic potential, their education potential, um, potential future health care costs. Well, Terry, if you think about it, there has never been a time when we didn't tolerate men's abuse of women. So we don't know the full benefits that we will have when we no longer allow men to abuse women. And the fact that all this time we have been lenient, we have let abusers go with mild sentences or denied that they committed abuse, you know, that's gone on for a very long time. When we start taking it seriously, we're going to change the society in some wonderful ways. And it's not just that domestic violence is going to stop, but you're going to have reduced crime. You're going to have an increased economy. A lot of really good things are going to happen. So wouldn't it make sense for advocates who work in this area in helping to eradicate gender-based violence and oppression to reframe the discussion and put it as an economic cost? And it seems to me that that would be very convincing to a lot more people who aren't currently involved. So stakeholders such as corporations, you know, thinking about their future workforce or their local economy and future customer base, you know, those those kinds of opportunities are going to be lost by not investing in the safety of women and children now. You know, that's exactly right. And I must tell you that I was doing research based on the original Quincy model, um, which was best practices that dramatically reduced domestic violence crime in Quincy. And someone gave me a link to some research about medical cost of DV. And I just, when I saw that, I said, you know, our society has changed. The whole world can be changed because public officials who wouldn't take domestic violence seriously just for humanitarian reasons will suddenly do it because of the enormous amount of money they're going to save. And that may be how we get them to do what they should have done because we never should have allowed men to abuse women. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Quincy solution because that was going to be the next area that I wanted to explore. Can you tell us about the history of the Quincy solution and if it's been applied to any current um, cities in the U.S.? Okay. Um, in Quincy, the district attorney, man by the name of Bill Delahunt. Sorry, where, which, where is Quincy? Just it's to in clarify? Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Okay. And he noticed that in a high-security prison right near him, virtually every prisoner had a childhood history that included domestic violence and often sexual abuse. And he believed that if they could prevent domestic violence, they would significantly reduce crime. And they did. A county that had averaged five or six DV homicides every year enjoyed several years with no murders. And there were other communities at the time, because this was in the late 70s to the mid-90s, and other communities like San Diego and Nashville used similar practices, 
and dramatically reduce domestic violence, crime, and especially murder. So we know that it'll work. Unfortunately, in those communities, people retired, people moved on to other positions, and they undermined the successful practices. But we know what would work. And in my book, The Quincy Solution, I updated the successful practices, and we now have research that shows why it works so that we could dramatically reduce domestic violence crime and in doing so, save hundreds of billions of dollars every year. Isn't the Quincy solution basically part of the Duluth model in some ways? It's theoretically framed in the Duluth model and just enacted in in these three examples that you gave in Quincy and San Diego and, and I'm sorry, Nashville. I didn't hear the what model? In the Duluth model. Oh, the Duluth model had some similarities. For instance, Duluth had the coordinated community response, Mm -hmm. which is an important part of the Quincy model. But what Quincy was and what Nashville and San Diego was strict enforcement of criminal laws, protective orders, and probation rules, practices that made it easier for victims to leave, and as I said, the coordinated community response. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what they used and how it worked. I, I probably should have asked you to, before I asked you about the Duluth model, just frame for our listeners what the Duluth model is. The Duluth model was actually, in Duluth, they developed the This is Duluth, Minnesota. Yes. Mm-hmm. They developed the coordinated community response. And what that meant is that different parts of the community have a role to play in ending domestic violence. Because for a very long time, different parts of the community were encouraging domestic violence. And we're talking about like the economic community, the school community, the mental health community, the religious community, obviously the court system. You know, they were all doing things that undermined the work to end domestic violence. So instead, you put all these communities together and they would talk to each other. And they would work together to take domestic violence seriously and to try to end men's abuse of women. To me, that sounds so logical to have a coordinated response because when families experience violence, it's not just safety that they're seeking. There's some economic component that you've mentioned. There's some housing instability. We know that it's linked to poverty. So... Why I'm struggling to understand, first of all, why these three cities that you shared weren't able to continue them. And knowing the success of the Quincy model, why more cities haven't adopted it? Well, first of all, the, the coordinated community response is something that I think most people within the domestic violence communities agree that that's what needs to occur. You know, the problem is that other officials, you know, have other priorities. Is it because of cost? Because it's going to be too much money to train and actually make this happen? Some of it is cost, but I think more of it is ignorance. You know, I, I think a lot of public officials, first of all, they don't, they don't think of domestic violence as a specialized area of knowledge where you would go to these experts to figure out the best way to respond to domestic violence. 
And, you know, lots of times they turn to mental health people. They turn to law enforcement that, you know, everyone but the domestic violence community. And so they're missing a lot of the best practices. I see. And so I'm curious, your book, The Quincy Solution, how can or how has services and advocates across the country become aware of it? Is that something that they are accessing through other law enforcement that have been able to successfully implement it? Or are you actively initiating and educating them and informing them about this? Well, we're, we're doing the best we can to encourage communities to adopt the Quincy solution. I can't tell you it's been a huge success so far, but we're continuing to spread the word. And the, the thing is, the fact that this is based on really good research and that the opportunities are really exciting. And I think that if a few communities were to implement the Quincy solution uh, and they see the benefits, particularly the financial benefits, then I think it's going to be adopted all over. But it's getting that first few communities. Perhaps officials don't believe it'll work or, you know, they're happy with what they're doing you know, the status quo is sometimes hard to change, but it would really be good to use research about domestic violence to change our practices. And I think a big problem is that in the 1970s, when domestic violence first became a public issue, there was no research. And we adopted a lot of practices that don't work very well. Now we have the research, we know what works well, and we can't get people to integrate the research into their practices. Well, isn't also part of the problem that because services and interventions are not currently coordinated in communities, the data that they're collecting isn't aggregated. And so in order to implement a coordinated solution, you need to have an infrastructure to collect and measure that. Well, you know, think about it. There are many communities, including New York City, that have justice centers. And what a family justice center is, is to put all the different services that victims of abuse would need in one location. And these organizations and offices that supply those services are supposed to work together and at least communicate. So that would be a good head start, but they haven't gotten as far as we'd like. Yeah, and from my understanding of survivors that I've that I know who have gone through that system, part of the challenge is that those family justice centers technically they start as a form of referral, but there's no coordinated way to, for example, do one intake and share information from agency to agency within those family justice centers so survivors have to begin the process again and again for each of those agencies. So it seems like that model needs to be adapted to what you're suggesting. I think that different justice centers have different issues and different practices. And of course, they come in very different communities, you know, an urban area like Queens would be different than, you know, some rural area in Montana. And, you know, there is a national organization 
of justice centers with Casey Gwynn, who helped do such a good job in San Diego. And, you know, I'm sure they're trying to get them to do more. And I was hoping when the Quincy Solution came out that they would, you know, use the justice centers because that would be a head start towards implementing the Quincy Solution. I see. So, Barry, before we conclude our discussion, our conversation, at the end of every engendered podcast, in the spirit of James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio questionnaire, I've created an engendered questionnaire for all of our guests. So I'd like to ask you first, in the context of gender bias and the larger problem that we're trying to address, which is gender-based violence and oppression, what's at stake? Well, it's important to understand that gender crimes are very different than other crimes because there isn't a history. A generation or so ago, these behaviors were either not crimes or were not enforced. So we need to make it clear by enforcing the laws strictly that this behavior is no longer tolerable. Okay, and just to follow up on that, what do you mean there isn't a history to gender-based crimes? Because it seems like, to me, misogyny has been around since the beginning of time. So you're saying that... I'm not saying that the acts weren't being committed. I'm saying that the acts were not treated as crimes. I see. So that, you know, like before the 1970s, when a man hit his wife, it was treated as a personal matter, as a family matter, not something for the pub, for the law enforcement to get involved in. I see. Okay. And what gives you hope? The research is really exciting. The fact that we know how to stop domestic violence and child abuse, the Me Too movement, which is saying that we no longer can mistreat women the way men have done that for centuries, and the economic possibilities that there's an economic incentive to stop this kind of abuse. Great. Um, That sounds very encouraging. Uh, And for our last question, there's four parts to it. You don't need to answer every part, but you're welcome to. So for our listeners, so that we can end on something actionable, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to be part of the solution? Well, the, again, the Safe Child Act would make a huge difference. And, and for men, one of the things we need to do is to listen to women. And we don't do enough of that. And, you know, we need to focus on how does our behavior impact women rather than what was our intent. This has been a very illuminating conversation, Barry. I really appreciate it that you, you've been able to spend this time with me after a long day <laughs> at a conference. Thank you very much, and I hope you can come back. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. 
Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.